As I uh, thought about and prayed about this passage uh, in this text, it, it reminded me that uh, a number of years ago, um, we turned our, our backyard of the church property into an obstacle course for Vacation Bible School. Uh, some of you may remember that. Uh, it included a, a rope climb. There was a, a spider web. We had logs. We had rocks. We had other kinds of materials. And the, the kids and uh, teens had to overcome those uh, various obstacles in order to win points for their teams. And the kids loved it. But for legal reasons, uh, after Vacation Bible School was over, we had to dismantle it. You can understand why. If somebody came and started playing around without adult supervision and they fell off the rope uh, climb or they uh, tripped over uh, some of the obstacles that were there, uh, they could have been hurt and we could have been sued. You see, the very term obstacle indicates that there is a danger involved. Obstacles get in the way. They prevent you from getting directly to whatever your objective is. Now, if you love the rock climb, obstacles are good things. They, they, they create the challenge that you're looking for. But if you're driving down the highway, you want the least amount of obstacles uh, that you can have. Paul warns mature Christians in this passage not to create stumbling blocks, not to put up obstacles that would get in the way of people coming to know Jesus Christ or prevent their growth in the Lord Jesus. Seven times in verses 13 through verse 23, seven times and in different ways, the Apostle Paul exhorts against using Christian liberty. Just gave a little plug to the Sunday School. Julius talked about Christian liberty today, so if you need to know more about it, uh, watch the, uh, the Sunday School lesson for today. But he warns against using Christian liberty selfishly, which creates then a hindrance to the growth of other people. You know, boasting about spiritual liberty and the liberty that I have in Christ and, and those things is like bragging about being humble. It's a rather foolish thing to do. The gospel creates enough obstacles for faith. We don't need to add to what the gospel creates. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says that the cross is folly to the Greeks and a stumbling block for the Jews. Let's not cause unnecessary hindrances to the development of the spiritual life and growth in others by imposing upon them what we think is best. Removing man-made barriers. We allow men, women, boys and girls to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and to grow up in their faith. To bow before King Jesus and to him alone. And that's what verse 11 declared that we studied last week. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me 
and every tongue shall confess to God. Let's have people bow to Jesus Christ and not bow to you or to me. When you become the standard of what is right and what is wrong in the church, you remove God as the object of faith and you place yourself in his stead. When you replace God's glory with your own glory, that leads to becoming a stumbling block that hinders other Christians from seeing Christ clearly. So, our theme from this passage this morning is pretty simple. Stop living for yourself. Stop living in a way that says, well, everybody should be like me. Everybody should think the way that I think. Everybody's Christian faith should model my Christian faith. Stop living for yourself. You need to start living for God's glory. Let God's glory be seen in this world. There's one of our devotionals that we uh, have been studying as we're working our way through the the book of Romans as a church. One of the the devotionals talked about nights. Uh, Not nights as in darkness, but nights as in those people that go around in those metal cages, going trying to walk around. Knights like Sir Gawain and Sir Galahad, knights swear loyalty to whoever the baron or the king is that they're under. They often live in the same castle. They often eat at the same table with the king. But the knights are not the king. Notice how Paul reminds you that like them, you live before the king's seat. As they sit in the presence of the king, you and I as Christians, we live before the king's seat and under him. Jesus Christ reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. You and I serve him. We do not rule him. We recognize that truth from verse 12. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Just as the manner in which Sir Lancelot would uh, live his life and therefore reflect on his king, the fictitious King Arthur, so you and I, as we live, we reflect on our king, the true king, Jesus Christ. So notice that you need to recognize when you have false judgments. When your judgments are false judgments, as you judge other people, as you you look at them, you need to understand that there are things that you think are the right way to do things. But they may not be the only way to do things. You are not the king. Sometimes we think we are, and sometimes we act like we are. But we need to be mindful of the fact that we 
are not the king. No matter how important a knight was in terms of fighting on behalf of his king or doing a tournament and how great he was as a tournament, the knight was not the king. As Christians, you and I represent our king. We represent Jesus Christ. But you don't sit in the king's seat. You sit before the king's seat. And you answer to the king. Verse 10 tells us that. It says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you? Why do you despise your brother? If we stay with this knight analogy, right? If an enemy comes against the king, it is the knight's responsibility to go out and to fight against that enemy. And destroy that enemy. He is to uphold the honor of his king. And we see the Apostle Paul, for instance, doing that often. For instance, in Galatians chapter 2, we are told that the Apostle Paul took on Peter because Peter had gone rogue from the gospel and he had even drawn Barnabas away from what was true. And Paul had no problem protecting the honor of God's gospel truth, even against Peter, the apostle. In the book of Acts, though, it was Peter who fought for the honor of his king against Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. The brother of, a half-brother of Jesus, Jude, in his book, he came down hard on those who he called false teachers. And John, the apostle, he warned us that we shouldn't even allow in the doors of a house church those that teach heretical doctrine. The knight stands for the honor of his king and will fight against those who are the enemies of the king. And you and I, we have that responsibility. We must stand for the truth of the gospel. But on the other hand, a knight didn't have the authority to determine who the king would accept at his table. Even if that person that the king would invite to his table was disliked by the knight, the knight did not have the right to say, no, you can't come in. You don't belong here. There's a good biblical example of that. It's in the story of Esther. If you remember the story of Esther, uh, the, the king, Xerxes, decided to honor a guy named Mordecai. Haman, what would be the equivalent of the Secretary of State for the United States, Haman hated Mordecai. But he didn't have a choice as to whether he honored him because the king wanted him honored. We do not have the right to determine who gets to sit at God's table. God has that right. Paul warns us in this passage 
to avoid letting your likes and your dislikes cause you to give a false judgment of others. If God accepts that person, if he accepts them as his child. But notice also how you need to recognize your future judgment. You see, you and I may judge other people here on earth, but all of us will stand before God. And you will be judged and I will be judged by how we judged other people here on earth. Over the past few weeks, Julius and Sean and I have reminded you that Christians need to carefully separate primary from secondary issues. When we're trying to decide how important an issue is in the church, is it, is it a primary issue or is it a secondary issue, we should be asking ourselves this question. Will what someone is doing or saying condemn them to hell? You see, that's, that's the issue. The issue is, how does what this person is doing or saying, how does it affect eternity? We may disagree on certain things about how to carry out the church, how to organize the church, uh, and those kinds of things. Even issues of, of baptism, whether you should be immersed or whether you can sprinkle children and those kinds of things. We might disagree about those. The question is, will that prevent someone from having eternal life? We might be wrong, and they might be wrong, but they would say the opposite of us, wouldn't they? Does this issue that we are feeling so strongly about, does it keep someone from heaven, from a relationship with God? Or is it something that we can discuss, perhaps even debate, but it's not a matter of eternity. Paul brings that point up in verse 10. He says, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Your likes and dislikes, your preferences and privileges are not the arbiters of right and wrong. God alone is. As a matter of fact, if you establish your particular uh, likes or dislikes, your preferences, if you establish those as the means by which you're going to encourage somebody in the faith or condemn somebody in the faith, and the chances are you're going to go to hell faster than they are because you have just usurped the authority of God himself. You have just set yourself up to be the one who is determining eternal life for others. Jesus warned that we should not judge others because we will be judged by the same manner in which we judge those others. Now, obviously, Jesus was not talking there about not ever 
taking a position on those things that are orthodox truths. But we have to be mindful of the fact that when we take a stand, are we taking a stand on something that God has said, this is essential to faith or not? God doesn't share his throne with anyone. So how would you or I dare to sit on his throne as judge? What the Bible states is clearly wrong. The church must take a stand against. But where God has left things somewhat unclear in the scripture, he has left room for opinions and we must do so as well. You live before the king's seat, from which he judges the world. Don't make false judgments based on your likes and dislikes. Concern yourself with issues that each person will answer for when they stand before God's future judgment. Now, during these past few sermons and Sunday school lessons, we've emphasized the personal opinion should not determine whether someone becomes part of the church or how they stand within the church. And that's been our emphasis so far. However, we have not dealt yet, not clearly, with Paul's distinction between the strong and the weak in this passage. What does Paul mean by the fact that some are strong and some are weak? Don't judge people because they are weak. If we're going to to tackle that, I want you to notice that you live by the king's standard. In other words, God may not condemn something. They may leave it somewhat unclear. However, because something is not very clear does not mean that God doesn't want you to pursue the best answer for whatever it is that's being discussed. Modern Christians tend to avoid comparisons. Our culture today is trying to make everything egalitarian. Everybody is equal. Everybody should be doing the same thing. Let's not raise this person up above that person. Do you know the Bible doesn't do that? There's a reason that we have mentors and we have mentees within the church. John puts it this way in in 1 John 2. He talks about there being fathers in the church, young men in the church, and children in the church. It has to do with the development of the spiritual understanding and spiritual growth. In Philippians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul even says, some of you may not yet have come to understand the things that I'm teaching you, but live up to what you know now. And as we've said in the past few weeks, the writer in Hebrews chapter 5 says, some of you by now should be teachers, but you're still sucking milk. He doesn't say you don't belong in the church. He just says you haven't grown enough yet. You haven't developed enough in the faith yet. As we live for Christ, as we live in the gospel, we need to pay attention to what Paul says in verses 18 and 19. 
He says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual building. Now, there, there are two parts to this verse. First of all, are these people acceptable to God? In other words, has God brought them into his family? Have all these people, are they acceptable to him? Yes. But look at the second part of the verse. The second part of the verse goes on and says, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual understanding. In other words, he's saying, yes, we all may be acceptable, but let's pursue that which is better which is greater, which is stronger. And in light of of what we've been seeing here in Romans 14, the strong, mature Christian is the person who is pursuing peace and mutual upbuilding in the church. And you can only do that when you come from the position of strength rather than a position of weakness. So notice then that you need to recognize your forbidden judgment. What judgments does God forbid you to do. Imagine standing before the Lord on the day of judgment. And there you are, you're standing before him, and he shows you the people that you drove away from his church because of your judgmental attitude, because of your opinions. You see, Paul, he understood the Jew-Gentile distinction. And he deals with that throughout the book of Romans. But even worse for Paul was what he is facing here in this chapter, which was not the Jews and Gentiles, but two forms of Jews. The Jews who held to the old law way of living out their lives and the Jews who had come, like Paul, to understand the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, the liberty that we have in him. And as a result of that, Paul is seeing this split in the church, and he's saying, no, we can't do this. We have to have a better understanding, a better love for one another. And that's why he wrote in verse 13, Therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. If you're a mountain climber, rocks don't matter, do they? I mean, that's what you're there for. You like going over the rocks. You like climbing over the things, those obstacles. You, you like conquering those. But for a person who's not in good health, it's, it's not a good idea for you to say to them, come on, you can do it. You know, I did it, so you can do it. But very often, that's the way that we approach things in the church. God has, has helped us grow in our faith. He's helped us to have an understanding of, of, of biblical truth. But then we turn to those who are younger in the faith who, who may not have gotten there yet, and, and we're wanting them to climb the mountain when they're having a hard time walking across the field. And that's what the Apostle Paul is concerned with here. Let's not put stumbling blocks and hindrances in the way of those who are learning, those who are are growing in their faith. Now I'm going to move from the first century into the 21st century. 
I'm going to use an issue that is a fairly large issue in our culture today to show you what I think the Apostle Paul is saying and how we can apply this to other areas of our lives. In our current culture, we don't face those same issues that the first century church divided over, the issues of you know, what meats are clean or unclean, what we should eat or not eat, whether we worship on Saturday or whether we worship on Sunday, uh, and those kinds of issues. But recently, in our Thursday night leadership mentoring group, we discussed cultural issues that have impacted the church that are similar in a way to those of the first century church. Issues like the critical race theory, or CRT. A study of the critical race theory quickly reveals that it has Marxist roots, which means that it is contrary to Christianity, that it opposes biblical concepts, concepts like the nuclear family, the unity of human race is descended from Adam and Eve, Christians need to take a stand against CRT, against the critical race theory. And we need to do it at every level to show it is sinful and evil. However, standing against the critical race theory does not mean that individuals concerned with racial inequality who use the language of CRT should be condemned within the church. They need to understand a better biblical terminology and be taught a better biblical terminology to understand the concepts of what it means to, to be a Christian and, and how that works out in terms of race relations. So they're not using the secular terminology. But they are not wrong in caring about the ethnic divides in the culture, and in the church. The same is true of Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter organization is Marxist. It acknowledges that right up front. It opposes Christianity. It is anti-Christian. However, we know that the lives of those who identify as African Americans do matter. And again, the terminology may need correcting. But there is an injustice against any ethnic group. We, within the church, must oppose that. And not oppose one another just because people aren't using biblical terminology. It, using Paul's terms here, we're talking about weak Christians. Those are the ones who use the language and even the hatred divisions of the CRT and the BLM. They've been wrongly affected by the secular views. But their concern for racial equality ought to be the concern of every believer. To judge a person who uses wrong terms does not bring peace, and it does not build up the body of Christ. Paul warns in verse 15, he says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now, we're not facing the issues of eating here. 
So let me reword that verse for us in light of what I just said. For if your brother is grieved by what you say, you're not walking in love when you mock the cultural and ethnic issues that he feels so strongly about. By what you say, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Speak the truth, but speak the truth in love. Tearing a person down is not helping them understand the wonder of Christ and the oneness of his family. And so you need to understand and to recognize your free judgment that God has given to you, the, the freedom and the liberty that is given to you, does not allow you to tear down others, but rather to build them up. The strong Christian does not accept the ethnic divides, but, div but does celebrate ethnic diversity. The evangelical church ought to stand out as the most ethnically diverse and loving community in the world. Instead, Sundays at 11 a.m. are known as the most ethnically divided hours of the week. How can that be? Paul writes in verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. By saying this, Paul is not addressing the Jew versus Gentile struggle, but the issue amongst Jewish believers. And we need to recognize that the issues that we face, we face as Christians. One church, one people of God. We need a Paul-style Christianity today that declares that all evangelical Christians are clean. That accepts the uniqueness of each ethnic group, their music, their dress, their jewelry, their hairstyles, their artistic manners. And the strong Christian doesn't get drawn into the political argumentations that divide. But you should hold strong opinions based on biblical truth, not political divides. The goal is unity and diversity without compromising truth and righteousness. So when it comes to these ethnic issues within the church, stop focusing on getting everyone to agree on the disputable matters. Narrow the conversation down to what is eternal matters. What leads to peaceful solutions? And what will result in joyous living out of kingdom principles? Stop letting the culture force you to choose sides. There are no Democrats, Republicans, Libertarians, or Conservatives. Just Christ, first and foremost. Stop living for yourself, living for your ethnic or political identity, and start living for the glory of the God that you say that you serve. King Jesus, not Martin Luther King, not Congressman Peter King, not even the author Stephen King. Let's live for Christ.
We have one king that we serve. Let's get past our petty differences that divide us for a moment here on earth and start living for eternity. Let's bring heaven to earth. Notice then that you live within the king's security. And when you do so, you won't have to trust in the courts or any election or any other human organization. Paul reminds us in verse 17, he says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he is saying to us that we have one kingdom allegiance. You may have been born a citizen of the United States, or Puerto Rico, or Russia, or China, or Romania, or Colombia, or El Salvador, or Costa Rica, or Trinidad and Tobago. You may love your culture, and love the foods of your land, but you have one allegiance. That is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So let's enjoy the ethnic foods that each person serves. Let's talk about the beauties of your native land and of the peoples. But never, never, never forget that you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. You're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You're heirs of God. And if we're going to do that, we need to notice, to recognize that we have faulty judgment. Whenever you view this world through the eyes of your ethnicity, rather than your ethnicity through the eyes of Christ, you will mess up. Let me ask you a very difficult question. Do you love me more than you love your mother and father? That's a serious question. Do you love me more than you love your father and mother? No matter what your ethnicity, if your father and mother are not believers in Jesus Christ, you have a higher calling to love your brothers and sisters in Christ than you do your physical family. You must love the person sitting next to you and that you said hello to this morning when Nick had you turn around and face the others. You have a higher calling to them than you do to your mother and your father if they're not believers in Jesus Christ. And even if they are believers in Jesus Christ, you have a higher calling to love them as Christians than you do as physical family members. Why? Because they are your eternal brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. You think that I'm making that up? When Jesus' mother and his brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, came in Mark 3 to take Jesus away because they thought that he was being 
overstressed and that he was creating too many issues. The people who were seated around listening to him let him know that his mother and his brothers were outside and wanted to see him. And Jesus, knowing what their purpose was, looked out at the people that were seated in front of him, and he pointed to them, and he said, there are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. When you let your country, your ethnicity, your political leanings affect how you treat people, then you have been led astray. Paul warns the Colossians, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Stop thinking, then, as the world thinks. Stop measuring people by the standards of your own culture or your own heritage, even your Christian culture and Christian heritage. Let Christ be in you. Let his eyes be your eyes. Let his ears be your ears. Let his love be your love. And if you do so, and you need to recognize your fitting judgment, for your judgments will begin to fit in line with Christ. Verse 17 contrasts these two kingdom views. The kingdoms of this world versus the kingdoms of God. The kingdoms of personal opinion versus the kingdom of Christ. The kingdom of personal opinion measures others' faith by your interest, your ethnicity, or your likes and dislikes. And that leads to spiritual pride. The kingdom of God leads to righteousness, and peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verse 4, we find the kind of righteousness that Paul is talking about when he says that the kingdom of God is about righteousness. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Not according to the flesh. That means that we don't go by the standards of color, culture, or choice. The Spirit unites, it doesn't divide. It loves, it doesn't hate. It shows compassion, not callousness. While living in holiness and righteousness. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, we used to know Christ according to the flesh, but we no longer know him according to the flesh. Not talking about his uh, you know, the, the, the Christian's flesh, he's talking about Christ's flesh. In other words, we knew him as a Jew when he walked here on earth. We knew how he lived out a, a, a physical life on this earth. We knew him as a human being here on earth. But he says, we no longer know him that way. We no longer think of him as a Jew, living for Jews. We think of him as Christ the Savior of the world. We need to live and think by the Spirit 
and not by the flesh. And when we have that kind of righteous thinking and living, it brings peace. Peace with God, as Romans 5.1 told us, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. But it's also peace with God's people, and even with the people in the world who are not committed to Christ. Romans 8.6 says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Notice that it doesn't just contrast it, death and life, but it's death versus life and peace. The, the unity and the harmony of the Holy Spirit as he gives us the glasses that allows us to see from eternity's perspective rather than from an earthly perspective. We do not become colorblind. We become color brothers and sisters in Christ. Like a family that adopts a child from another ethnicity. Adopting that child makes that child become one in that family. They're raised together as one family. So the church unites in harmony and peace. People of every nation and language and tongue. Because we all have one heavenly father who's adopted us into his eternal family and made us his heirs. And so we have peace. And such a family of righteousness living in peace brings joy. What a taste of heaven on earth when brothers dwell together in unity. Romans 15, 13 states, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope, filled with joy and peace in believing. As we trust in Jesus Christ, instead of finding fault with one another, which is the way the world thinks and the way the world acts around us, let's change the world through the harmony of hearts of believers as we live together in Christ. Black Lives Matter and the critical race theory, they sow hatred, they sow division, they, they sow bigotry. The very racism they condemn oozes out of their mouths and out of their hearts. And Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. But the church must fight the injustice of sin wherever it is found. But we do so by loving compassion, by grace, by mercy, by forgiveness, and by hope. And yes, by hope. Hope in Jesus Christ, hope in the Holy Spirit, hope in the church, hope in the hearts of Christians who love one another and love their neighbor and love their enemies. For the church, every Christian within it, should have their hearts and their minds and their arms wide open and crying out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And when that happens, you begin to understand the mind and the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ, who did not come into the world to save Jews, even though he was born a Jew. He came into the world to save sinners, to save men, women, boys, and girls, so that they might get a taste of heaven, that they might find out what it means to be truly free, whom the sun sets free is free indeed. 
so that they might come to see that God is a creator God who creates people of every ethnicity because God loves richness. And he wants it all together in his throne room, worshiping and praising and eating together as one. The world can't understand that. Only through Christ can we understand that truth. It is time for the church to start being the church and start letting Christ draw us into him and in doing so, seat us around his table, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, all gathered together from every race, language and tongue for the glory of God, heaven on earth. And so in conclusion, how much do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, I'm not talking about the people here at Metropolitan. I'm talking about across the board, around the world. How much do we love them? Does God's glory matter more to you than your own appetites, your own desires, your own likes? and dislikes. If it does, then let's be the church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, forgive us when we have become fault finders. Oh, give us an understanding of what we must fight for. That what we must stand against. But let it not be against your children, against those that you have called into your family, or even against those who you are calling to become part of your family. Like the early church that lived so beautifully in the midst of their culture that the world, in spite of the persecution the church was enduring, the people, their neighbors, their co-workers came to them and said, what makes you different? What makes you so unique? And the world was one to Christ. The Roman, <laughs> the Roman Empire fell on its knees before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let that happen here in the United States as we begin to live for the glory of God instead of the glory of self. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.